as we honor the Lord and His Word and remain standing for this Word. I hope that we understand that when we read and hear the Word of God, it is more and something quite different than when we hear and read any other literature, a book uh, before us. This is the living Word that can cut asunder between soul and spirit, and it's the discerner of the heart. And if we listen with faith, then we hear God speaking to us. Let us pray to that end in just a moment as we read the Word together, beginning at verse 41 of chapter 2, and then we'll go through the end of the chapter. Chapter 2, Acts 2, beginning at verse 41. And those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were come together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would open up our heart of hearts, and pour into it life, the life of Christ. How thankful we are that we are rooted in Him, and we ask that You would cause us to drink deeply of the waters this day of the Spirit, that You would send Your Spirit and power upon us, Your people, and fill us, and teach our minds and our spirit, our heart, the good things of our great God in Christ Jesus. We pray that you would bring forth the fruit that you would be delighted in and bring forth peaceable fruits of righteousness from us all. And we pray that you would be glorified in not only the preaching, but the receiving, the hearing. And in this time of worship now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what would... A series on the Church of the Vision be like if we didn't go to Acts 2.42. And we covered the concept of fellowship back in 1 John chapter 1, and we'll address it again here, but in a, in a context that is more comprehensive. As we think about the early church and what we have a glimpse of here in this passage, we read in this passage something is more descriptive than prescriptive. And when we read the book, particularly in Acts, we need to make discernments between that which is prescriptive and which, that which is descriptive. Prescription is like a command. It prescribes us to do something. But descriptive describes something how it is. And so like it is with the Beatitudes, blessed are, and that goes through all the characteristics of those who are in the kingdom, those are not commands for us to obey. Those are true characteristics of those who are in the kingdom. 
So it does take a little different twist, and we have to understand. I think what's here before us is descriptive of the church of Christ because it's very characteristic of how the church should be when they are filled with the Spirit of God. It shows us how the early church and and the church throughout all of history that's faithful lives and thinks the gospel. You may recall earlier in this chapter that the Holy Spirit came upon them, and this was the time of the great Feast of Weeks and the time of Pentecost. And as the Spirit of God was poured out upon them in fulfillment of what Jesus said, they would in not many days be baptized with the Spirit. This occurrence that happened on that day could be somewhat parallel to the Spirit coming upon Jesus at His baptism, which marked then the beginning of His earthly ministry. The Spirit coming upon Him in the form of a dove empowered Him for His earthly ministry. And in the same way, by way of analogy, when Christ ascended, He baptized the church with His Spirit and sent the Spirit upon His people to empower us for our earthly ministry, which is really an extension of His. The Spirit would create in this a new kind of community and a new way of life. The community would be a powerful community that would then be the leaven in the kingdom of the world to leaven the world with righteousness. The new community life would be centered around Christ, where the worship of God would be the fountainhead from which all of the activity flowed of this new community. As we see in our text this morning, community life of the church, this new spirit-filled, spirit-empowered community was all-encompassing. It wasn't a tangent addended to a life of somebody. It wasn't on the border or out on the margin of their life among many other things. It was an all-encompassing life. These are people who knew that they had been bought with a price, and so they were no longer their own, as Paul would say. And they saw this as a good thing said in verse 41, those who gladly received the word were baptized and then added to this new spirit-filled society, which we call the church, this covenant community, this called out people. And here they have a new identity, they have a new purpose in life, and they bound themselves together in love, and devoted themselves to one another for the glory of God here on earth so long as they lived. This new Spirit-filled society would be a beautiful, close-knit group of people whose lives had been changed by the Gospel, and they would live a new kind of life. A new kind of life that would affect the world around them. And if they're faithful, it would affect the world around them more than the world around them affect them. 
That's why this church is called holy. It's set apart. Ecclesia, it is called out. Out of the world in the sense and unto God, but still left in the world so that we can be its leaven, its light, its salt, its influence of Christ. And if we dedicate ourselves to the same principles and character as the Scripture here expounds, we will enjoy the great fruit of this wonderful, beautiful community that God has established, not man. And in verse 42 of the Scripture, a very well-known passage, we have four characteristics of the life of this early church. Not commands to go do as much as descriptions of how they were. Their characteristic as a body of Christ, which flowed out from them having gladly received the gospel. It says in verse 42, And they continued steadfastly. Now that term, they continued steadfastly, is an action word. And it means to adhere to with strength. To adhere to with strength. And there were four things that they adhered to, continued steadfastly with. And the first of that is the Apostles' Doctrine. They continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. The Apostles' Doctrine is teaching. It's the teaching of Christ, which was then given to the Apostles, and the teaching now throughout the church. The teaching of our faith, the cultivation of the Gospel in its constant activity. And the teaching was not merely didactic to the head, it was the teaching of all of life. The teaching of the heart, the teaching of love, the teaching of Christ in and through His people back unto the glory of God. As Keith prayed in his prayer just a moment ago, quoting from Romans 11, for of Him and through Him and to Him be all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The teaching ministry of the church is one of the most important activities her ministers are to be about. They are to teach. The church is ever to be learning, ever to be growing in our understanding of the gospel and gospel life. As Peter would put it, we are constantly to be growing in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a new life, a new way to live, a new outlook on life, a new worldview with a new family. And for us to continue in the Apostles' doctrine, first of all, the church is to continue steadfastly. It has to have teachers. And that is why Christ sent teachers as a gift to the church, ministers who are called and empowered and gifted and even qualified by the Spirit to teach the whole counsel of God. One of the signs of a true church is the presence of ordained ministers who have been called and gifted to teach the Scriptures and who are faithfully doing so. 
There's a spiritual gift that's associated with this activity of teaching because there are many impostors which must be discerned, many gainsayers that must be refuted, and many continuing schemes that must be stopped. Like in the old days, the endless genealogies and the old wives' fables and tales, these things have to be addressed. And that's why, and even part of the qualifications of an elder, Paul is telling Titus, hold fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. There will always be a constant contest for the purity of the truth of the gospel. Always will be a contest within your own life going on for the purity of the truth of the gospel. It will come in many forms and have many faces and there will be idols that come up and deceptions that will try to ensnare you, but you will be battling all of your life for the true and the purity of the gospel. In every one of Paul's epistles that he writes to the church, one of his objectives is to defend the gospel against the enemies that come against it in the church. So her church's ministers will constantly be battling for the integrity of the gospel in the lives of God's people. And they'll be battling for the gospel life, not just the gospel as the three propositions of truth. And the gospel is certainly propositional truth, but it is not merely propositional truth. The gospel, and this is the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, that Christ died according to the Scriptures, and He was buried, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. That is the gospel, set forth in propositional truth. But as we embrace it and we trust it and we follow it and give our life over to this gospel, there is a life of the gospel that also must be defended. The enemy has always been about planting moles within the church and with congregations. And they will attempt everything in order to destroy the beauty of of gospel life, of the covenant community of the church. Do everything they can to slightly distort the gospel because we've already learning in Galatians a slight distortion of the gospel ceases to become the gospel altogether. Teachers teaching the apostles' doctrine is necessary to maintain the integrity of the true church and the beauty of covenant community. They continued steadfastly. Secondly, if the church is to continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, not only must there be a teaching ministry that is constantly going on, but the church and every member in her must be teachable with the Scriptures. Teachable with the Scriptures. Apostasy in the church is a turning away from sound doctrine. And there's a multitude of reasons why this happens. 
something's more attractive or someone gets a little discontent or whatever it is, but then it's, all you have to do is let Satan get a foot in the door and the deception can delude you into a place where you are no longer embracing and hearing and listening and being teachable. That's why Paul told Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned again unto fables. I have been known for being quite an exhorter and perhaps maybe not quite as compassionate as a pastor or what some people think as a pastor ought to be. I can't say I apologize for being the exhorter and the strength that I need to be but if I'm anything less than where I should be in compassion, I ask you for, to forgive me. But I want you to know, I am battling for your soul until the day I die. And my greatest and single objective is to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for your soul. And I can do it in a good conscience, saying I preached to them the whole counsel of God. I exhorted them, I rebuked them when they didn't want rebuking. And I corrected them when they didn't want correcting. And yes, I exhorted them sometimes maybe a bit harshly, but Lord, here they are. Here they are. So do give me your long-suffering and patience knowing that my intent for you is good. But knowing also how the Apostle would instruct me as he did Timothy. Preach the Word. Convince them that this is true. Rebuke them when they are wrong. Exhort them with all long-suffering and suffer it long when they do you wrong and teaching because because there is a time when they will not endure sound doctrine and they will grow weak according to their own desires and how they want the thing to be done, how they want the sermons to be preached, how they want the minister to minister to them. And so they're going to make it easy and they'll get some teachers that will heap up for themselves things that might be comfortable and easy to palate, but not things that are good for their soul. So I ask you, just indulge me. I did not go into the ministry to pursue anything of this world. And I am not looking for a reward in this world for the ministry that I give.
but I am looking for the crown of righteousness, which is your faithfulness and enduring because we believe that the preaching of the Word of God and the clinging to, adhering strongly to the apostles' teaching is that which will keep us safe. And the church continued to adhere strongly to the things that may be hard at times, but the things which are for the saving of your souls. I am convinced that as a pastor, I look out with people who become very careless with the gospel and who become flippant with holy things, and I don't think they realize how perilous they are on the precipice of falling off and making shipwreck of their faith. They take it callously and flippantly, and they, they don't treat it with all gravity and all sobriety and all those other biblical qualifications of those words of how we ought to think and be watchful with all diligence. Because I think we can often presume upon God's grace more than we can trust it. Let me tell you, the enemy is stronger than you are, and he can deceive you where you think that something is true, where it is a blatant lie. That's what he is. He's the father of lies, and he can get you to believe a lie when you think that you cannot. And if you think you stand, take heed lest you fall, and hit. the enemy is stronger than you are. And he's been around a long time. People can be very confused about what is right in a constantly changing world, in a world around us that we often cater to, that can constantly liturgize us in things that erode the apostles' doctrine. Sin complicates life. But let me remind you, those who gladly received the truth were baptized, and they continued in the Apostles' Doctrine. So continuing in biblical doctrine is what grows the church, but it's what protects her from the dangers and threatens her existence, whether it be you as a member or the church as a whole. Secondly, they adhered also to fellowship. They strongly adhered to fellowship, koinonia, the sharing of life together in a covenant community. Not just a society, not just a neighborhood, um, suburb, um, what do you call those things? Covenant neighborhoods. HOA, thank you, from, our, from Troy there. Not, not just a society or some club. No, a covenant of God's community where He has called us out of the world and we are bound together as a, like a husband and wife become members of the same household, the household of faith. And Romans 12, from which we read, there's a verse at around verse 9 or 10 that actually solidifies and takes us from a phileo love, of brotherly love, into a kindred agape love, making us and loving each other as members of the same family. And sharing of a life together is the expression of a redeemed life. What you do to one another is how you think about Christ. 
So that if you give a cup of cold water to the least of these, my brethren, it is as if you give it to me, Jesus says. When did I go and visit you? When did I clothe you? And when did I give you food when you were hungry? When you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. See, there's an inseparable connection. And so when you begin to serve the church as unto the Lord, it is your way of serving Christ. But when you begin talking about the church in unhealthy ways, running her under the bus, don't be surprised if the Lord Jesus stops you on your way somewhere and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you talking about my church this way? Why are you talking about my bride this way? Do you know how defensive a husband can get when you slander his wife? But those who gladly received the word were baptized, and they adhered strongly to fellowship. As much as I think this is a strong point of ours, I think we don't fellowship in this way as much as we think. The word koinonia indicates new habits on which the saints assembled together. As I've iterated In the past, I'll do so again this morning, this fellowship is not merely meeting together for dinner over at someone's house this evening or tomorrow evening or Tuesday evening. And that can be a part of it. But that is not the essence of it. But this koinonia, this fellowship, is characterized by Christians taking, talking, Talking of things spiritual together. Talking of God together. Talking of the spiritual life together. If you're not talking about the spiritual things of God, you're not living the spiritual things of God. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what is in the heart will pour forth. Out of the heart are the issues of life. And so a true fellowship is characterized with Christians talking about their spiritual life with Christ together. Malachi 3.16 says, And then they feared the Lord, then they that feared the Lord spake to one another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. Fellowship, see, includes a new language. <clears throat> includes a new speech. It includes a new vocabulary. You are now entering into a different land. You got your passport. Baptism. Remember? Way back. Remember that service? And now, you come into a new society, and you have to learn the language, you have to learn the vocabulary, you have to learn what expiation is, and how that's different from propitiation. You have to learn, these are biblical words. Trinity. Koinonia. Koinos. That's why Ephesians 4.29 in this vocabulary, let no corrupt communication, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. 
but that which is good, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. See, we must be talking about the things of God. We need to be exploring ideas about the things of God, and we need to be talking about the heavens as though we're discovering new glories, not just leave it to the secular atheist astronomers. Consider the wonders that God has made. Study them and talk about them. With your children, with your husband, with your wife, with your brother, and this afternoon with your people. Psalm 111 verse 2 says, The works of the Lord are great, studied by all those who have pleasure in them. And if you have pleasure in it, the fulfillment of that pleasure will come out in your praise. I would like to encourage our church to be more proactive in our gatherings to discuss the things of God. For those who may even be gathering together this evening for fellowship, truly make it fellowship. Maybe even consider asking God to direct the conversation so that they are about Him. They are about the Scriptures. Perhaps some new science in which you're learning right out of the Scriptures or some new, some new form of beauty through the natural revelation that God has shown you all around. But ask God to direct your conversation about Him and His works. Make it a time of true biblical fellowship. True fellowship must include the talking to each other about the things of God. I'd love for us to hear more conversation. But fellowship also includes not only the talking of things, but the sharing of things together. The sharing of life, the sharing of experiences, the sharing of the joys, the sharing of the sorrows, the sharing of the burdens. That's why true covenant community cannot happen virtually. It can't happen online. It can't happen with social media. It can't happen at a distance. We do what we do here in community because we do it as unto the Lord. And when we serve one another, we're serving the Lord. Folks, let that... Govern your thinking right there for a moment when someone frustrates you or you're serving and you're not getting a reciprocal kind of response back. Just do it as unto the Lord. Do it with thanksgiving as unto the Lord. The Lord's poured grace into your heart, then you just pour it out. And don't expect anything back. The Lord will reward those. He is not slack to forget those in all of your works that you do for the saints. We share life together. Heritage is not a place that you can have a lot of privacy. And I know some people who move in think that we're in everybody's homes every single day, three times a day, eating foods out of their cupboards and, and that sort of thing. Some of that can be true. I've gone in my refrigerator at times and I've opened up and was looking for something and it wasn't there. And Turns out somebody else from the neighborhood came and helped themselves to it. 
there's something beautiful about that. Okay? There's something beautiful about that. So I'm not complaining. But we don't have a lot of privacy. But boy, do we have so much more privacy than the early church did. We have so much more privacy than many of the cultures today have. And Chesley and I were first married, we lived in Tampa, Florida, and we had friends. Of course, Tampa had a large population of Cubans. Cubans don't know what this privacy is like. We were over at our friend's house, and we were over there for dinner, and, and come the neighbors, and no knock on the door. They just come right on in. Hey, what are you having for dinner? And then another family comes. Before you know it, there was like four Cuban families in this family's home, and they're just all interacting like it was just part of life and how they are to live. Right next door to us in Atlanta when we first moved there, I think there were three or four um, Mexican families living under the one roof of the one house. It was a bit funny. Uh, one day they decided to have a, a hog roast, which we've done before, and to just, uh, what's the word, Bert, I'm looking for, uh, scandalized the neighbors. Um, when they walked the dog, or not the dog, they walked the hog around on a leash. And they were rejoicing, and the kids were playing with it, and then the next thing, it was on the grill. <laughs> I remember the day pretty clearly. I thought it was funny. I was a deer hunter, and I had to be careful with um, my neighbors who just didn't sympathize. We were right in the middle of a, of, of a suburb neighborhood. This was not country living. And um, I remember that day because there were so many Mexicans running around that yard. They were all happy and laughing, and, and they went till wee hours at the night, but I had the neighbor kids coming over, and they were all in my garage, and they were just like infesting the place. They, did, they didn't do any harm, and they were just laughing, and it was, again, there was something kind of beautiful about that. It's a sharing of life together. There's a, a certain uh, Trinitarian aspect, because Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were never alone, ever. They were eternal consubstantial, co-eternal. And if we were to live Trinitarian lives, it's a life of a mutual sharing of life and love and joy together. As we have fellowship with Christ, as 1 John says, we have fellowship one with another. They go hand in hand. So to be a faithful member of Heritage, this is not a place where you can receive of the benefits of Christian community without being a part of what brings those benefits into being. Does that make sense? In other words, you have to give. You have to serve. You have to participate. You have to share your life and be there for others and be hospitable and be loving and be forgiving and be producing. Be planting, be watering, be weeding, so the fruit can flourish. 
You can't go into the field to pick the fruit from the tree and then retreat back to the privacy of your own home and eat of the labors of others by yourself. It simply is not the way koinonia, the fellowship of community, works. You have to contribute to the beauty of that which you partake of for it to continue. And they strongly adhered to this fellowship. The church continued steadfastly in doctrine and fellowship, and third, in the breaking of bread. This specifically refers to the Eucharist, the communion, the Lord's Supper. It places an emphasis on corporate worship and communion with Christ. And this is the fountainhead. This is the central part of the life and the activity of God's people in covenant community. But notably, the Scripture as well as church history and early church places the sacrament of the table as one of the main activities of the gathered church. And it was central to their meeting together. Acts 26 says, Now on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread. What did they come together to do on the first day of the week? Oh yes, they sang songs, and they sang hymns, and they preached the Word, and they talked. But when it's describing the focal point of their activity, in which all that they brought together, it's communion with Christ, with Him, around His table, and breaking bread. It wasn't the only activity, but it is the central one. The Lord's Supper was a ritual meal. It's symbolic, it's didactic, it's liturgical. It is a covenant renewal time. It is something that is to be repeated. And the first day of the week when the people gathered together was the common and expected time. Not necessarily the only exclusive time, but at least minimally on that weekly gathering. And yet so much of the church today has lost a sense of ritual, a sense of liturgy, and a sense of symbol in our worship that we've often marginalized the symbolic, the liturgy, and the ritual. The Enlightenment and rationalism have degraded our worship oftentimes into lecture halls or conferences. And it's hard for the modern American sometimes to see the difference between a Christian conference and what goes on here. The Lord's Supper was a regular practice in the church, and it should be also today. The means of grace to the recipients. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace. How many people here do not want God's grace today? See, and if it is a means of grace, the very nature of the sacrament should determine its frequency. If the church really believed that the nature of the sacrament was a means of grace, why has it been so neglected? Why has it been so marginalized? Why is it something they don't strongly adhere to so that it weekly, when they come together, they can't but have of it? Why is it that that is not true today? And 
Fourthly, they adhered strongly to prayers, to praying. Now, this is mainly talking about corporate prayer. In fact, most of the time when Scripture is speaking about this time of prayer, it's talking about corporate prayer. That's why when Jesus was answering His disciples' question, Lord, teach us to pray, He says, pray in this way, Our Father, us, we. It's the first person plural. He's teaching His body to pray. This was not merely as individuals, but in connection to one another. We see from the next chapter, in chapter 3, the Jews and the early Christians alike had regular hours of prayer, morning and evening, like the morning and evening sacrifice. The Psalms in Psalms 119 calls for prayer morning, noon, and evening. And so regular and faithful was Daniel with praying morning, noon, and evening. That his enemies set him up in a trap so that they knew exactly when he was going to be praying and they went and spied out Daniel because he was so faithful with praying. Today what we refer to or have heard in the church practices as daily offices are really set times of prayer after the Scripture pattern of morning, noon, and evening hours of prayer. These were further developed in the monastic traditions and monasteries of the church. Monks would use the Psalms as the text and patterns for their own praying, because that's what the Psalms are, or prayers. And when they prayed them, they did what we should do, and that is sing them. We should never think that when we sing the Psalms, that that is going into a different from praying. Okay, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a psalm, and then we're going to... No, it's singing the Psalms is prayer. It's praise, it's thanksgiving, it's petition, it's lament. It's all of these things. So profound was the singing of daily psalms in prayer in the life of the community of Geneva that John Calvin attempted to popularize this practice in Geneva with all the people. He looked at what the monks were doing and said, that's a good thing, but it needs to be for all of the people. So it's not by accident that John Calvin is credited in giving the church its first metrical psalter that all of the people could sing the psalms. It wasn't just a hymn book, it was a prayer book. Those were prayers. The prayers of the church are, the, for the most part, corporate. Now, private prayer is certainly must have a, a, an integral part in your, in your life. I hope all of you pray privately. Every Christian should be praying privately. We are to be about praying constantly without ceasing, but never at the expense of corporate prayer. While corporate prayer is often best facilitated as we gather together physically to pray, I don't believe that's the only way we can pray corporately our we. For instance, there are times where we may fast for a particular period. Sometimes we call a 24-hour fast 
for a set time with a very specific purpose. And I believe that is even corporate in nature, even though we may not be gathered together in body. Now that's different than your private praying, praying for your private things and private uh, devotional time. But when you set together with the church at a time, focus that. Even if you're apart from them physically, you can be with them in spirit. I also believe that if we had a set time each day, like 9 o'clock and 3 p.m., or that was the, the traditional hour of the morning and evening sacrifice and the hours of prayer of the early church, that no matter where we are, if we stopped and prayed in a coordinated manner, we would also be doing so as a church in corporate prayer. The church needs to be more about praying. You and I need to be more about this activity of praying in our private life, more about this even in our corporate life. This is one of the reasons we've encouraged you to pray through the Psalms, morning and evening. We have a morning psalm, we have an evening song. Don't just read it, pray through it. Pray the Psalms. If you have the opportunity, don't stop there then sing it. Sing the psalm in prayer to God. For your convenience, we have now taken those morning and evening psalms and we've integrated them into the church barn calendar. So if you are, have access to that barn calendar, you should have access easily to those psalm of the morning and psalm of the evening. By the way, that will take you you know, some time to pray through that, but it, the Benedictine order of the monks, they prayed and sung through all 150 songs in one week. And then they would do it again, and do it again. And that was part of their spiritual daily life. Now, if you're not praying the morning and evening psalms, let me encourage you to read and take some time, at least in the morning, to start your day. Take some time to close your day and envelop your life in prayer. Let the psalms train you to pray. It's one of my objectives here to have all 150 psalms put to music that we can sing. Music, that is. I know we've got different psalters already with that, but music that is fitted to the text of the psalm is speaking and in the character of that particular song. We've got a lot of work to do in the church there. In the tabernacle, the tabernacle and temple is this holy place. And in that very sacred place, we find then in, in the holy place, not the holy of holies, but the holy place just outside, there was a table of showbread. There was bread. And there was an altar of incense. There was smoke. And we know that from the Scripture it is this incense smoke that is the prayers of the people. And so when the high priest once a year would go in on the Day of Atonement, he would the smoke would then waffle over into the holy place and would be a shroud between uh, God and Him. The prayers of the people became the mediation. Prayer was mediation. And I dare say your prayers will precede you into heaven. So be about praying. This will be a mark of the Spirit-filled church. These four characteristics must never be separated. A healthy church will have them all held together and continue to hold to them and adhere to them fastly and strongly. The majority of evangelical churches today who hold to the apostles' doctrine, many of them do not maintain the Lord's table along with it, 
on a regular occasion, like weekly, specifically weekly. I would contend they are not as healthy as they could be, no matter how academically precise they may be in doctrine. And yet many of our high churches that maintain the Eucharist regularly and even a regiment of daily offices of prayer do not maintain the apostles' doctrine. And again, they are not a healthy church if they are a church at all. When all of these things come together, all of these at once, we have tremendous fruit and results of a healthy church. And very quickly, for the sake of time, I'll cover four of these results. Number one, there was fear of God that became evident in verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul. Fear. You remember how I define the fear of God? The fear of God is the constant awareness of the presence of God. Living in the constant awareness of the presence of God. That's the fear of God. That's the beginning of wisdom when you're constantly living in the, or living in the constant awareness of God's presence. It's the beginning of wisdom. This is one of the results that happened as the church strongly adhered to these four characteristics, and they were living out these four characteristics, see. The presence of God was made known and aware, not only to them, but to those around them. And the fear of God came upon all. The people sensed that God was at work among these disciples. Secondly, in verse 44, and those who believed came together. Now all who believed were together. They were together. Do a Mark Robinette. Say together. 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 Say Said together. Mark would not be happy. Together. together. Y'all can go write him this afternoon and tell him how proud you are of me for doing that. Those who believe were together. The church that continues in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers will stay unified. If you read through your Bible, unity in the church should never be taken for granted and should be prayed for constantly. Paul was constantly exhorting, praying, teaching, rebuking against the things which threatens or destroys the church's unity. He writes an entire epistle on this very thing to the church at Corinth, a church he personally founded him, a church that personally rebuffed him. Factions within the body of Christ is one of the chief sins for which her ministers are severely judged. And when we come around the table, there's even a great warning about that very sin issue there. So we should notice the connection between our faith and unity Together. Those who believed were together. Unity is a fruit of faithfulness, living by faith, faithfully, according to the Scripture. 
A church is a called-out society of people that live together in unity as a loving family if they are dedicated to the characteristics which we find in verse 42. And if you receive the word gladly, then the word will continue to square you up with those characteristics. So long as you continue to receive the word gladly. In verse 3, verse uh, number three, verses 44 through 46, the third result that happens is that they shared this life together. This is, again, this koinonia. So while it's a characteristic, it also becomes a fruit. And as we read verse 44, it says, Now those who believed were together and they had all things in common. That word common is the very same root that we get from fellowship. Koinos. And those things that we have in, together in fellowship, koinonia, we have this in common. I have expounded this on other occasions. I will not take the time to do it here. This is not a form of communism. but This is a voluntary heart of characteristic of what it's like to love one another as God so loves us. See, there is something new and profound that was going on in their lives. And the church was not a tangential part of their life. It was for them the very heart and the center of their life in Christ, a, a, a protection, a society from the world, and yet a communication of discipleship to the world. And so they took care of each other's needs. And they enjoyed life together. They took care of each other's needs, and they enjoyed life together. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Like someone coming over and at least having the liberty to raid my refrigerator. They broke bread from house to house. Now, I do believe in this portion, this is not referring to the Eucharist meal. I think this reference here is the simple sharing of life together. Like what we do Monday and Wednesday and Lord's Day evening, we, we go over and we eat together. Had so much more meaning in the ancient times than it even does here today, but it still retains the same principles. We love to have people fellowship and this way and be hospitable and enjoy and just share life. So much disharmony can be reversed when fellowship is strongly adhered to. And then a fourth result here, we see in the last verse, the kingdom of God grew. They were praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Present tense, not those who were saved. Not those who will be saved, but those who are being saved. That's us. We are being saved. Are you saved? Yes. Will you be saved? Yes. Are you being saved? Yes. The kingdom growth happens not only in adding to the church this way, but it grows spiritually as we are being sanctified, we tend to use the word, being saved. 
Kingdom growth comes when the Spirit-filled church is in communion with Christ and one another and being the church that God has called them to be. And the church for whom Christ died and purchased with His own blood is the central institution of redemption and regeneration. And through her and her members, the kingdom of God marches through history, evangelizing and discipling the world. And the primary way of this redemption and transformation of society around us is in corporate worship. It's through corporate worship. When the church gathers according to the Scriptures and the power of the Holy Spirit and is trained and motivated and commissioned so that the culture may be properly engaged and properly transformed with character. When the church is confused about her worship, her message about transformation will be muddled. We have to begin with God's priorities. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Those are God's priorities. And that's why we emphasize the priority of corporate worship at Heritage. It is the highest, most profound, most transformative activity that we do. And the way that the kingdom will grow is when we, as an individual Christian, continue in self-conscious engagement with the living God in the context of covenant community. Corporate worship and community are two main points that characterize the early church and a victorious church as she began her powerful, fear-inspiring growth here on this earth. And this must always be at the heart of what we at Heritage are about. To the glory of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Our gracious Father, we ask that you would empower this message with your spirit and bring the fruit that would delight you and that would bring the beauty that would exalt you and that it would bring uh, the, the work and the labors that would serve you and that it would give you the worship due unto your name. And so we ask that you would move each one of us to contribute our part and to share together in the beauty of this church. In Jesus' name, amen.